Welcome to Volpreneur Podcast Show. My very special guest today is B. Ray, who's dazzled audiences for 20 years speaking about entrepreneurship, leadership, and women in business. She's the author of What Harvard Taught Me, But My Kids Made Me Learn, um, which is, and is also a co-founder of Millennial Women's Network, empowering and mentoring women in 24 countries. And she has also launched several high-tech and non-tech companies. Welcome, Peter, to the show. Hey, so happy to be here. Thank you so much. That's great. So um, I had a bit of a look at your website and sort of a bit of a feeling for what you're um, about. So certainly um, I think we've got some topics we can talk about that relates to entrepreneurs because I think it's pretty much seems like it's in your blood. Um, and I'll probably have a conversation about that later as to whether you think you're born an entrepreneur or whether you actually become one. So, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your background. How did you sort of get to where you are now what, What's your um, and, and what you're doing now? Sure. Well, thank you. So I have a love for the entrepreneur. I really have a love for the individual. And what I find is individuals love to solve problems and the more power you can give them, the, the better. So I'm not a big company person, although um, I have been an in innovation in large companies and I've done some work with what we might call entrepreneurship. Um, but most of my career, I have either been starting a company, been a co-founder of a company, I've been a, a mentor, an investor, a coach. Um, so that is really my heart is helping people take ideas, um, the chance to solve a problem and monetize that in figuring out how to start a business. Right. So, so yeah. as a kid, were you um, were there signs that you're going to be an entrepreneur or was it like something that... <laughs> That's such a great question. Thank you for that. So I think the first company I started in air quotes, I was uh, living in New Jersey. I think I was in about the fifth grade. And at that point, uh, of course, earlier in my life, I had had paper routes with my brother. So I was always looking for ways to make money and I'd been babysitting and walking dogs. But it wasn't until the fifth grade, which is what, 10 or 11 years old, that I did start uh, a newspaper. I took a regular eight and a half by 11 sheet of newspaper and I cut it into about, you know, divided it into about 10 spots. And I went around to the neighborhood. Uh, there was a barber, there was a deli, there was um, a handful of other things. And I said, if you pay me $2 and 50 cents, I'll draw a picture with your phone number and I'll make 38 photocopies and I'll put them in the mailboxes in my neighborhood. And so I actually made a little money. Uh, there was no news. There was nothing I was reporting. It was just like a little booklet of uh, coupons. But that was my first endeavor. And around then, maybe a year later, I, I was sitting at the pool and heard some housewives talking about how they hated to iron shirts. They didn't like to iron the the men's shirts and the dry cleaner made them too stiff and I thought I can do this so I used to watch a soap opera at the time it was called General Hospital some of your still going old, isn't it I don't know, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> those are the days of Luke and Laura and I would stay I got a I got $75 per shirt I could do about four an hour and um, I walked over to the neighbor's house picked up the shirts watched General Hospital iron them and delivered them back and so that was my second little business um right. but i was always looking at little businesses so much so that my mom kind of scolded me and she said b the neighbors are bringing us bags of apples they think your father has lost his job you need to stop it <laughs> funny how word gets out <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. i think i was a kid when i was a kid i probably was about 11 12 ish i think i started um 
we had we had a lot of chooks. So I had I was on a railway siding, so population three people. But we we owned the post office, or had had license to local local post office. So we everybody in the you know everybody from all around had come to the post office, and and basically we had all these chooks, and I thought. I could sell these eggs because everybody, you know, wanted so. So I'd sell the eggs across the counter. So, and we had quite a lot of chooks. So I'd have a lot of eggs going through, and I was charging like two dollars and a dozen or whatever. And then after a while, my mother said to me, "Hey, you really need to be paying for so this for these eggs because basically, you know, you know, you feed the chooks and stuff like that." And so I decided because I couldn't make a hundred percent profit, I would just stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the end of the, that was the end of it. But I used to sort of make when I was younger. I know I used to sort of make believe I had a business and record sales and do all that kind of stuff. So I think okay. I think it's a, a kind of a little kind of I don't know trait or a kind of a, a thing that you start listening to people, but from a different perspective as a problem solver rather than just yeah. saying oh yeah okay poor you or whatever. You kind of look at solving their problem, and I think there's a lot of money to be made in solving people problem people's problems. For sure, for sure. Right, that was, I ran a nonprofit for many years out of a town called Savannah, Georgia, and the organization was called The Creative Coast. It was funded by the Economic Development Office, and we served over 300 people uh, that were more like idea stage entrepreneurs. But the very first question we always ask is, what problem are you solving? What problem are you solving? Because if there are six other competitors, maybe we don't need a seventh. If there's something that someone can do inside their organization, you probably don't want to hire someone from outside. But if you can understand, and in this situation, when I was 11 years old, it was these women, the men didn't want overstarched shirts and the women didn't want to iron them. And so I had an easy solution and it worked. Uh, but if you can figure out what is the problem and find a way to solve it, and that's really the best part uh, that's the mindset of the fun of being in a startup because then you're solving different problems all day long. You know, mm -hmm. you're, starting, you're, you're, you're answering the, the marketing puzzle. You're answering when do you pivot? Boy, in the land of COVID right now in quarantine, <laughs> every company's had to have a long list of mm -hmm. different problems that we're solving in different ways. And mm -hmm. um, thank God, you know, you got to have that mindset early on that you're not going to wait around for someone to hand you the answer, but you're going to start figuring out the answer. And it's interesting, even in Australia, like the the government sort of like had a scenario where they were going to give money to the you know the businesses, but they said, "Oh, we'll pay in about six weeks' time." So, can you keep the employees on, but we'll pay you the money in six weeks' time? And it just showed you very clearly that governments have no clue how small business operates. Six weeks is like a year in right. probably in government, right? You know, you can't you know two weeks is a long time without any money coming in. Six weeks is almost impossible. Of and I think that they sort of like eventually started getting it moving and, and, and sort of now I've got, they've got a thing called JobKeeper where they actually pay the wages of the employees and they're starting to try and take it away from, from businesses. And the danger is, is that most businesses probably got a bit lazy and they didn't think, oh, well, I'll just get this money and I'll survive and I won't change. And I think right. that's the difference between, a, to me, a business owner and an entrepreneur. A business owner will tend to run a business the way they run a business, but an entrepreneur will get in there and start making changes and they'll start looking at opportunities. And I think that's the danger in, in this kind of scenario when you look at pivoting. You know, a lot of businesses can't pivot. They're just, they're not built to, right? Yeah. You know, like I've got a, a local um, sporting place I go to and he won't change. He, he will not change. Like he still wants to keep running the same way. He wants to kind of look like he's changing, but he's not. 
And I think that's the danger in, in entrepreneurship. If you can't change, if you can't sort of say, hey, this ain't working, I need to change it before it gets you. <laughs> um, I think and, that's a danger. and so often we have to change in two or three or four different directions because mm. we don't know which one is going to work. So, you know, I'm a public speaker or, you know, a keynote speaker. So, of course, immediately I, I, I was silly enough at first to think, oh, we were the one industry that was going to be hit. Well, it turns out every industry has been hit. Um, but very quickly, myself and my colleagues, we moved to an online actual course like on Teachable. And I started doing Zoom talks and, and we had to come up with really sort of three different potential revenue sources. And one was an absolute flop, but mm. the other two mm. were able to, to take hold. And, and I've watched some local businesses kind of do the same thing with, um, you know, restaurants moved to, you know, ditching their individual menus and just having like family style. So come over and buy a $50 meal, but you split it with your family. And that system has worked really well mm. through COVID because you couldn't come in and eat in the restaurant, but we'll deliver it to you. Um, because I mean, a family meal typically isn't necessarily, you know, broken into individual servings that are <laughs> customized right. to them anyway. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And I think that's in some respects, I think the restaurant industry is probably the one that's going to get, it's probably going to change the most. Because um, I think they're the ones who basically have got to survive out of this, and I think a lot of them have also have got caught up in this whole. Like you probably you got the same thing there, like menu log and all those big companies where they actually charge a fairly big fee. Um, mm-hmm. Because in some respects, I think restaurants have been quite lazy with their marketing. Yes. Right, they they kind of expect people to come see them, so they don't really worry about online. And then they get caught out and then they've got no way to purchase online. So they rely on something like Menulog or Uber Eats and stuff like that. And they take 30%. And so yeah. suddenly you've got a, a real problem that they have never really had to solve before. And that's pricing something that actually, you know, so I think, yeah, I think it, it, in some respects, I think this is going to make a lot of businesses better as a result. They're going to make them smarter and listen to the customer more maybe. Um, rather than just go, well, here as it is, you know, the chef does what he wants. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he can do what Well, he wants. listening is certainly important, especially in times of pivot. And um, mm. it's actually something I talk about in my book that uh, I did attend the Harvard Business School. And what's so amazing there is the, the way the school is set up to make sure you become a great listener. So at my five-year reunion, one of the professors said, hey, you all came here with a story to tell, but you left world-class listeners. Mm. The reason for that is it was in a classroom where you have the same 80 people for your whole first year, and the professor is an hour and a half class. The professor is going to talk maybe 15 minutes of it. The rest is going to come from the other 79 people. Mm. And I have, and my grade depends on how much I contribute and how I build. So if I say something that someone else just said, those are points off of my grade. But if I say, you know what, I didn't actually agree with what John said. I feel more closely to what Suzanne said. Now I'm, you know, helping the class. And so we had to listen like crazy? Did that person make sense? Could, would I agree with it? In what ways do I disagree? Um, and always be ready to uh, contribute, but not overstate. And so that was a really, really powerful, immediate lesson that I have tried hard to take into every aspect of business is, mm-hmm. um, can I listen a little bit longer? Can I 
ask some more probing questions? Am I understanding what this person is trying to say to me? Am I actually serving my client? Are they as happy as I think that they are? Are they actually talking to the competitor? Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I learned that lesson early in business when I started. I started an IT business, and um, I knew quite a bit of stuff. But what I didn't know was much about retail, um, right? And so I went into this. I think it was like a, a like a hardware store kind of client, and he started talking about barcodes, and I had no clue what they were. Right? It's like, what the hell's a barcode? And and so I started trying to wing my way through it, and then the end he says to me, um, "Well, you obviously don't really know what you're talking about. Like you don't know what a barcode is, right there." And I said, "And I said, no, not really." And he said, "Well, you know, if you don't know what you're talking about, you shouldn't try to make it up." <laughs> right, and uh, and and what I realised was that the the difference between that was asking more questions. So what I actually developed was a a, a checklist or a, a questionnaire list that we used to go in there and ask the questions. So I never answered any questions in the first consultation. Never, hardly ever answer any questions. And my success rate went from probably let's say forty fifty percent strike rate to eighty to ninety percent strike rate. Great. Because I had a bunch of questions and I, and they were sitting written in a certain way to kind of get emotion. So they were deep questions. Mm. And I think what happened then was that I didn't have to answer anything then. So I was automatically assumed I knew what I was talking about regardless of what happened then. And yeah. then and at the same time they they were heard, which I think most entrepreneurs don't get heard, right? So in some respects their wife or partner doesn't listen to them because they don't really know what the hell this entrepreneur thing is. And, and, you know, other people are going to pay to listen to them like accountants and stuff. So um, unless you're going and seeing someone, at the end of the day, only an entrepreneur can talk to another entrepreneur. And I think that that was always the problem with most entrepreneurs. They don't really, no one listens to what they actually want to say. And so then by listening to them and asking them deep questions, you actually, they feel connected to you then and away you go from there. So I think I learned early on, you know, it's better to ask, be asking the questions than, than answering them, right? <laughs> so... That's so good. That's so powerful. One of the things I try to talk to people about is, you know, we typically train our sales staff on our 10 features and benefits. And whenever I do workshops, I ask people to write down, what are your features and benefits? And then I immediately have you draw a line through all of them. Because the reality is, is we don't ever need to share them. What I love to replace them with are 10 great questions, the kinds mm -hmm. that you were asking, mm -hmm. is that if we can train our sales staff how to ask questions about what's going on in the prospect's life, why they've bothered to call you, what solutions they've tried in the past, what would mm. success be a year from now, you know, who's involved in the decision-making process, whatever are their best 10 questions. If we can train those things, we'll do like you did, go from 10, 15, 20% success to 80, 90% conversion mm. because people need to be heard and understood for sure. Yeah, and I think the thing is too, as you said about great questions, right? I, I remember reading a Tony Robbins book my sister gave me when I was quite young, and in 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 there it says, you know, to to for a better life, ask better questions. Oh, that's good. And I think that's really where um, you know it comes down to is the is the ability to kind of ask a better question. Um, and 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 a lot of times we used to ask a question like and lines, and this is a a great question to ask, I reckon, and can use it for anything, right? And that was, what is it? Um, you know, what does that mean? So if you're sort of like drilling into someone and says, well, you know, I want to improve sales, what does that mean? And then right. what does that mean? What does that mean? Until you're drilling about four or five times, in the end, it's almost like there's the real reason behind it isn't 
driving revenue. It's either about security or or about you know buying something or going somewhere doing something. So it's never really just about what they say at the front. So whatever they say, the first thing they say is usually nothing about what they really want. <laughs> in my opinion, like it's like they give you the standard answer and hope they can get away with it. Um, and the reality is, as you drill in, drill in, you find out that there's more to it. Um, and I guess I think women are better with kids, with right? Because <laughs> you know, you kids, so kids tries to get away with an answer, and then you can tell she's he's lying. So just keep on digging in until you get the real answer. Well, that is the entire premise of everything I speak about. Is I did, I, you know, the book "What an MBA Taught Me, But My Kids Made Me Learn" is mm. really all of that. Is that uh, there are things I've been taught, and I'm super blessed to have this expensive education. Um, and then I've spent 20 odd years dealing with roughly um, three to 400 uh, entrepreneurs over 24 different countries. So what I've found is so many that questions and concerns are similar throughout. Mm. Some are different. And, but what I, what I say is, uh, but my kids made me learn and you're exactly right is that life is really, and business certainly is all about people skills. And for me, raising kids was the greatest way to hone my own people skills. Questions is, is one aspect of it, but everything about, um, listening, negotiation, collaboration, those were all things that kids super negotiators, right? <laughs> it's like you can convince a five-year-old to do something. You, you, I reckon you can convince anybody <laughs> to do anything. Like it's quite quite interesting when they kind of like um, it's almost like they don't have no fear of failure. So basically, they know they just keep on asking until you give in, or or keep on driving it until you get there. But um, yeah, I think that's probably the probably the best thing that anybody can ever learn is how to negotiate with a five-year-old. Because I reckon. <laughs> Well, I was at a four-year-old's birthday party the other day, and we were at a water slide, and her parents said, oh, would, you, would you like to go with B um, while Mommy and Daddy go on the big slide? She was having a fit. Of course, she didn't want to do that because it was presented to her as, um, we are going to do this fun thing that you don't get to do. And I said, oh, there's this pink slide over there. I feel like you know about that. I, would you be able to teach me? and take me over there. Immediately she went, we were mm -hmm. gone, the two of us for an hour, and her parents got to go on the big slide. But it was a perfect illustration of winning the negotiation by not negotiating, right? By, mm -hmm. by setting up the framework in the way that we were gonna lead for success. And yeah, I was, I was interested, I interviewed one of my book clients a few months ago and they talked about a communication sandwich. And it was quite interesting because it's it's by by the outer layers that you actually give them rather than the give them the sandwich itself because the sandwich isn't very easy to eat without some outer layers. So by actually setting the scene up a bit and and sort of like talking about how good they are or what they, you want them to help, they and then go go for what's inside. But otherwise, it's like a nope. <laughs> right, oh, that's so good. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I probably um, I'm big on and I've touched on before was failure, right? So I think a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly early stage ones, I think after a while you've been in business, you realise you know that there's not a, failure is an is an option, <laughs> not rather. And so what happens is failure is that I feel that failure isn't what it is. You know, people fail at something and think they're going to do it ever again. And I think that's something they get taught at school too. Like you're not supposed to fail at school. Like there's no, you know, like it, everything's set up to succeed. If you fail, it's a bad thing. But as soon as you start in life, that life is mostly failure, right? In some level or another. 
So one thing I love to say is that entrepreneurs all have two master's degree, one in success and one in failure. Mm. And I think entrepreneurs must know about failure because you have to be taking risks. Um, another thing I, I like to recognize is, you know, so I've started many companies, been the co-founder of many companies, but only one successful exit. So I have some that valuable, not pieces of paper where I have stock in some barely existent company. Mm. Uh, one time I sold a company and that afforded me six years off to be a stay at home mom. But um, I've plenty, plenty, plenty of failures. I actually dedicated an entire chapter to the book on failure and learning to basically it's that failure can be fabulous. But one of the things, I think it also happens with entrepreneurs is the imposter syndrome feeling like I'm an imposter. I'm not good enough. I don't believe I don't belong at this board table or in this room with 900 people that I'm speaking to that might want my product, whatever it is. And, and what I believe is that if you've ever felt imposter syndrome, you should take a moment and pat yourself on the back. And the analogy I'd like to have is we have big oak trees here in South Carolina is, is to think about an oak tree and how strong it is at its trunk and then how it branches these huge branches and then some twigs and then some leaves. And to me, I have what I call tree trunk friends. I spent some time with them today. They uh, have been friends for 30 years. They've worked in some of the same jobs for 25 years. They are super predictable. Now, I love that they love me and they welcome me, but that's not who I am. I'm not, and, and if I said to them, do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? They wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. Exactly. <laughs> they take so few risks mm. that they just are doing what they do. Now, that's a fine person. That's not typically an entrepreneur. No. So my pals who suffer from imposter syndrome are usually people that are, you know, I, I've got a friend who's feeding children in Africa and someone else is, you know, starting a shoe company. Like they're doing amazing things, but every day they're reaching beyond whatever it is that is known to them. They're in uncharted territory. They're taking major risks. So they're living their life way out on the leaf where it is uh, windy and breezy and you can fall down and it hurts to fall down. Mm. But my theory is like, way to go. Mm. So of course you feel, oh my gosh, I'm an imposter. I have never been able to run a $10 million company. Well, good for you for trying. Good mm. for you for taking that step. Good for you for making those decisions. And so I am a big fan of embracing the imposter syndrome and recognizing it for what it is because it's showing you're taking risks and you're probably doing some great things. And I think at the end of the day, I was watching a TV show there last night actually, I thought it was quite profound. I didn't exactly know exactly the wording, but it was like um, in your mind, you, you, per, you know, this whatever you do is perfect, right? Yeah. But the reality is it's not. So it's the universe just leveling things up a bit in terms of getting you back to reality is that and so you think you've done this you know you're going to do this perfect speech or you're going to do you know, this perfect podcast interview whatever right and the reality is is that it's just the universe leveling things up a bit because nothing's ever perfect right and i think that's the thing about it is that you nothing's ever perfect there's no um no i don't think any entrepreneurs ever had a you know, you know run to to the end and never made a mistake and never had a fall and i think in, apparently in silicon valley if you go in with a 
a high tech kind of you know proposal or asking how many times you failed before because they want to see you know can you pivot can you change direction because generally speaking the what you would create first never works anyway um and you know you look at paypal that came from a from a Palm Pilot add-on <laughs> in the first place. I don't know whether you knew that, but Elon Musk actually tried to develop this Palm Pilot security software um, that no one wanted. Like no one, I remember having a Palm Pilot, useless the thing that it was. But the reality is no one wanted security on the Palm Pilot because security wasn't a big issue back then. He probably was well advanced in his time because nowadays it probably would have sold well. But back then nothing was important. So that, that ended up pivoting into PayPal. And so I think that's the danger is that if you don't kind of look at it and go, well, you know, something that you start now may not be what it is down the track. Um, and I think too also ability to kind of fail fast, I think. Like if you're going to fail at something, go in there and the basis of it, if it's not working, then you can always pivot to something else rather than sit there and hang on to it <laughs> too long. Yeah, and that is interesting. We use that use that same phrase, and it's hard to teach people. Well, how do you do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I gave an ex- example earlier, talking to you about how just in the pivot of COVID, we came up with three different products, mm-hmm. and the idea was we got to get three out there fast because one of them is going to fail, or maybe two of them are going to fail, but we want to push it out there. Um, another thing we often do with startups is just say, get it out there to a hundred people. You know, get your minimal viable product out mm-hmm. to a hundred people. And that is the goal. The goal isn't, um, you know, paying off your debt or making a certain amount of revenue. The goal is we got to know fast if this is going to fail. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to know, well, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Because we're wired to not intend to fail but we want to know that you've given it a full try. And so I try to set up frameworks for how that, what that might look like. Mm. So the other thing I was noticing in your book talk about is your attitude determines your altitude. So yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, there was a time I um, had a very stressful life. I was staring down $700,000 of personal debt. I had... <laughs> like half a million dollars at one point there of debt to pay back. Yeah, it was a big, it was, that was a bad day. And we just talked about failure. Uh, I'm a single mom raising three children. And at, at the time I, I really was working roughly uh, three full-time jobs. I started really early in the morning. I would time my email. So it looked like it, I was nine to five, but it was around the clock. Anyway, um, people would constantly say to me, I don't know how you do all that you do and you do it with a smile. And I remember saying, cause I could never do it with a frown. <laughs> and that was really, it was, I, I learned, thank God that I could every, what's so cool is if we're going to run a race, we're going to eat something. We're going to put some nutrients in us. We're going to drink some water. We're going to, we're going to get a good night's sleep. Mm. And those are really important, wonderful things to do to prepare yourself for the challenge. What's interesting about attitude as opposed to, you know, eating, sleeping, drinking is those things are physical and they really only help me. Right. But my, also putting on a smile and some cheer and a helpful attitude, that not only makes me more likely to run the race, to do what I need to do today, to, but it actually has an immediate impact on you. 
You're more happy to speak to me. You're more uh, engaged. You, we are more likely to ask, hey, what can I do to help you today? You might even want to do business with me. You might even sign a contract with me. You might even send me a new employee. And so attitude is way, way more important than anything else that we can do. Um, it's than preparation, than eating, than sleeping, than drinking. It's, it's, it is really the thing that has the greatest impact, not only on me and my energy level, but everyone I come into contact with. And so it's totally irrelevant if I feel happy today or if I feel overwhelmed today. We gotta choose to be in control, be ready and go get it. Cause you know, I, I think trying to show up with a bad attitude is like limping, you know, um, and I think I've, I've been there with, um, and you've probably been there too, where you, you go into a presentation or you go to a sales pitch and what you're really thinking about is the fact that the money that, you know, the bank's about to foreclose on your house or whatever's <laughs> happening, right? And, I've, you know, like in some situations where I've, I've been in that situation where basically you have to put on a big front and you have to have you have to have to that attitude of like what's going on behind can be solved if you just put, you know, go forward and, and you know, and play the game. And I think that's part of the thing is that some people will let that get to them and then becomes a spiral from there because you can't get beyond it and and I've had to front up in some meetings where I'd rather been you know doing something totally different um, but it was a necessity because you had to move the business forward and I think that's the the difference is that people don't realize how much other people pick up on that um, For sure. in, in that situation. People want to be around successful people so you got to go in there with everything you've done that's successful where you're going to go how much you understand them um, and not if you don't buy this for me, I go bankrupt, right? No, everyone is going to run away from that. Um, I had a friend way back when I was in college. Uh, I spent my junior year abroad in England. And this woman said to me, how do you have the self-confidence to go to England all by yourself? I don't have the self-confidence to go to the Bilo. Um, Bilo was like our local grocery store. And I remember, I never forgot that question because I remember thinking why would I let my lack of self-confidence get in my way of my desire to go? Mm. So I may not have felt confident that I was going to make it to England, that I wasn't going to get lost, that I wasn't going to lose any of my stuff, that I was going to make a friend, that I could understand the classes, whatever. But I just wanted to go. Mm. And, and that exact feeling of choosing to have a great attitude about it is exactly the sales um, – situation that you're describing because if i sit here and i think oh i only have a 30 percent chance of making this sale and if i don't make this one we're not going to make payroll this month i actually went from a 30 percent chance down to a 20 percent chance right I need, to less, right? <laughs> uh, I need to go in there and feel like and no, I have the ability to solve their problem. I can save them money. I have the answers. I have the product. And really just allow a little bit of tunnel vision to get that done. And I don't know. That's really worked for me. So the really And then it becomes true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the really interesting for me is that um, in one of the businesses where I end up owing a lot of money in the end, um, was a scenario where I was basically buying a brand new car every two weeks, like a nice car. <laughs> I'm on payroll, yeah. it was a lot of money. In fact, we, we, um, we ended up having to pay payroll tax, which is like a million dollars a year in payroll. So I had a big payroll to pay. And bizarrely, 
we were able to get make payroll every fortnight when things were in trouble for nearly a year. And every time, just in the eleventh hour, something would come. Right? Wow. And and I really, I sort of believe, like I don't, I'm not religious as such, but I believe in the fact that if you put it out there in the universe, something will come back. And it was almost like a blind faith that it would be okay. Yeah. And and always was, and always, and to this day, I can wake up on a Monday morning and think I need to make some money this week, and by Tuesday, someone's put money in my bank account. Nah, that's right, good. and and yeah. that's just attitude and and you know basically the psychology of the fact that you know that it's going to happen. It's just a case of now it just has to happen. Right. Well, I, I certainly believe whether or not you th if you think you're going to be successful or you think you're not, you're right. Mm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. What you think about is what you bring about. Right. It's it's um and and I think that's the danger in in that what you say to yourself while you're alone is the most dangerous words. Oh yeah. And yeah. and I think that's and entrepreneurs beat themselves up all the time. I think and that's part of that failure syndrome, that poster syndrome, the whole things that sort of lay down on top of you. And sometimes you've got to like go out there and and talk to someone else that actually goes, wow, you know, I appreciate what what's going on here because I can see it. Whereas the average business, you know, average friend, as you say, your, your sort of fair weather friends will always be there for you. But the reality is they won't understand what the hell you're talking about because they're not they're not into taking risks or in, into that kind of mindset. So I think it's it's important to build that resilience, I think. And that's the danger in right now, particularly in that in the small businesses, probably under the biggest pressure ever, in my opinion, in, in the world, because big corporations are safety nets. Right. So you can go get a job in a big company these entrepreneurs could quit their jobs. They could say, look, I, I can't see a way out of this. I'm going to go and get a job. And then you right. end up working for big corporations because they're the ones who only want to be left at the end of this, right? They, they see an opportunity, I think, in, in some respects to get in there and, and take ownership of, of markets that you wouldn't normally be able to keep control of because you're too busy worrying about <laughs> how you're going to survive while they're actually taking your customers off you. So I think that's a danger that... You know, I hope hope that a lot of entrepreneurs get that bit of you know grit and say, "No, I'm going to hang in there, and I'm going to make sure that I don't um, become a statistic." Yeah, well, and and what you say is what you say to yourself. So it's, I often think that the most—I mean, I've traveled to Australia, the other end of my earth, but the the most important distance I've ever traveled is the three inches in mm. my head. Mm. You know, um, and sometimes I have to do that today and tomorrow and, and you have to retravel it because it's easy to slip into uh, the news and bad feedback and stress but I have just found that those things don't usually um, help me so no. <laughs> yeah. and I must have been the last in recent times I started watching the news and and over time I saw like into a point where I'm not going to watch that anymore <laughs> like it's it's the same thing Right. Every day it's the same thing and you've got to think, so why are they just repeating the same thing in different numbers or different ways? But the reality is they're doing exactly the same thing to you every time. And I think mm. that's the danger is that that mindset, you can end up being in a situation where the same, you know, somebody used to say that your brain is like a, a steel rod. The more you think about, whatever you think about is 89% of every day is the same thing. So you're forming these really strong connections that are actually true or false, depending on what you're thinking. And I think yeah. that's the danger is if you keep on reinforcing that, then you're in trouble because it's very hard to break it after. Yeah. I try to not think about thousands of things that I need to do, but I try to think about 
um, what can I do right now that is impactful and mm -hmm. just keeping moving. Um, I don't know if this is necessarily related to attitude, but I have found with entrepreneurs, it can get easy to spin out of control. So a lot of us think about our day in sort of a pie chart. So a circle split up into all of these little pieces of pie about the 14 things that we need to do. We need to uh, deliver our product. We need to make a sales call. We need to update our website. We need to work on our PR, whatever is the thing that this CEO needs to do. And I, I, I think it's helpful. Go ahead and stick that on your pie chart. But what I have found is then we can get spinning like a roulette wheel and we spend our time wherever the marble happens to land. And that is spends things out of control. So I try to encourage people to have the exact same size, the same number of hours in the day, the same number of tasks that you have to do, but change the circle such that you have one central circle and then you have concentric circles outside. And so what I have found is if we can just get the main thing right, usually it doesn't take 50 hours a week to get the main thing right. It's usually 12, 15, 20 hours, but you get that main thing right. Then you can think about the outside and the outside and the outside. And so, uh, for example, you know, I talked about, um, you know, sort of long-term prospects or um, opening up an office or the, that, those are the kinds of things or a new website that can like suck all of your life out that you, mm -hmm. if you're on the roulette wheel, you got stuck in that and then you didn't do the main thing. And so to me kind of switching from this roulette wheel or pie chart to concentric circles where it's like a, a bullseye has been a really powerful way of me channeling my uh, focus, which has led to a more positive attitude because it, it it's like you get a breather. You don't feel like you're chasing down the track. Mm -hmm. You're like, hmm, I got the main thing. Now I get to try that fun thing. And sometimes I do it by the week. Oh, I need to do my main thing for my 15 hours. And sometimes I do sort of like six hours a day and then I play play uh, with a, a reach project or wonder where this is going to lead me project for an hour or two a day, mm. but it, it's still getting the main thing done. And that has really helped. Um, it helps your mental status because you feel like you've achieved and you feel confident and you feel like your world is going to be predictable um, and you're not feeling out of control. And so that has allowed me to show up with the positive energy. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I get a lot of, uh, entrepreneurs say they're overwhelmed and I think, um, they've overwhelmed themselves <laughs> in some oh, respects. Yeah. So I mean, you haven't overwhelmed them. They've overwhelmed themselves. And mm -hmm. I think that they're doing them like I, I remember going to um, speak to a friend a long time ago and they talk about doing the most important thing rather and the most important vital thing that's related to making money usually you know like yeah. and, and that's the one they avoid right they, they'll avoid and do all the little jobs and then they go oh, well but i've got to focus on the one important thing keep coming back to that and i think that's the the danger is that you can get very busy in business <laughs> um, yes. and and basically end up getting nothing done it's just a bunch of activity and some of these people that i've sort of come across have said well my theory is that if if you can do this the most laziest way then it'll work so rather than think about doing having to work, you know, let's say I've got to work 100 hours to get this done um, a week and I, there's no way I can do it, but they try anyway. The question I always ask myself, what's the laziest way I could get this done? And then work from that point. Because sometimes being lazy means you might enjoy it. 
right? Yeah. Might be something you don't want to do, right? But you right. want to be, you know, so pick a lazy way. And the reality is if the lazy way works, you can add more to it. You can build harder, you can work harder, but you can't work eight days a week. Right. And I think that's what happens with people. They think, I'm going to put this massive amount of activity into something. They can't sustain it. It's going to catch them sooner or later because they've got other stuff to do. And so what's going to happen is you just end up with a, a, a failure again. But it's not a failure because it's a failure. It's a failure because you, you, you underestimate how much time you're going to spend on it. Right. And so we sort of like think, well, get a little win. Don't get a big win. You start with little wins and, and if it works and build up on it. But don't beat yourself up that you couldn't work 100 hours a week to get something done because <laughs> it ain't going to be a big fan of the little win for mm. sure. I think that that's so important. And sometimes that means breaking a big win down, right? I call it the mini sale. Mm -hmm. So I personally don't think anyone should ever sell something for $50,000 or more that if, if that person's never paid you. So your product may cost $50,000, but find a way that they get a taster for three to 5,000. Mm. Fine, whatever, if it's a consulting service, if it's, I'm going to write your book for you, if it's a, a, um, an online software, fine, especially if you're going to try to sell something uh, over the phone or over the internet. I'm a big fan of, um, sometimes it's like an assessment, sometimes it's come talk to me for a day, that'll charge, I'll charge you $5,000. And so what we're immediately doing is we are saying, uh, I'm of value because just to spend time with me, you're going to have to pay me $5,000. But what's also happening is I'm going to deliver, I'm going to try to deliver you $10,000 worth of value for that five because I'm going to, I'm going to do a great job, but I'm also going to get to know you. I'm going to know your weaknesses. I'm going to know the areas of your company that I need to bring my consulting in. Um, but I'm a big, big fan of what I call a mini sale. And the reason is I have literally worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs who went bust because they said, but I have a proposal out. I have a $60,000 proposal out mm. and they're not getting paid for these proposals that are out there. And my philosophy is no, no, no. Don't ever give anybody a proposal for $50,000 or more if, unless they've already paid you three to 5,000 for the privilege of getting that proposal, because then you're going to be giving a proposal of something that's exactly what they need. Mm. You're going to give, you would have understood it. You would have done a more thorough, I call it an assessment or um, some kind of like quiz or, you know, it's hard to say, mm. cause I don't know what everybody's business is, but the, 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 the nut I'm trying to solve is the entrepreneur going broke because they've got too many proposals out. They've spent too much time on proposals. And I'm not a fan of that. you got to have yeah. those small. No, you're right. And I, I had a situation where I think I, when I was in selling accounting software, we had these, this telemarketer guy, and I call it the empty tray syndrome. Mm. So you'd start a new employee off, and he was, he'd been there a while, and we'd taken over the business, and we started, and he's got all these outstanding telemarketing calls. And so within a month or so, he's, he's got a full tray of stuff. Somehow you can start a new employee with an empty tray and within a month they're overwhelmed with work. Yes. And, uh, and we saw it so many times. And I said to him, how many people have you got to call? And he said, oh, well, I said, so you call 10 people a day and you've got to ring five back. Then within a month, it's unsustainable. <laughs> you can't, right. you're too busy ringing people back to actually ring anybody new. 
Yeah. And, and it's like you've, you've killed yourself because the numbers, the pure numbers are going to going to kill you in the end. You're not going to be able to keep up. And I said, that's why you, you're overwhelmed right now because you, you don't know what to do now. You've completely put your to-do this so long. And I think the danger is is that, you know, for me, when I do a proposal, for example, I, I'm a 95% certain that they're going to go ahead. Like I don't give a proposal until I actually know that they're going to go ahead. Or I give a proposal because I know that um, that's what they want to make a decision they've already made, which is no. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so in some respects, it's like just a way of sort of giving them a way out of the process but nine times out of ten it's a proposal that that's really just the next step in the chain of what they've got to do next yeah. and i think that's a danger people make is i'll give you a quote and then that quote or proposal is the sales tool that they're trying to sell when they should have done all the work up front they should sure. be that shouldn't be a surprise like the price shouldn't be a surprise i've said to I've seen a lot of people where they send a big proposal price and they go and the guy just gets you know, ticket shock and just dies on you in the spot, right? Because he's just not going to—he's not going to do it at all. So it shouldn't be a surprise, but also it should just be the next step. It yeah. shouldn't be the step. No, I, I totally yeah. agree. You know, yeah. you got to get the head bobbers early on. You know. Yeah. So if you do the work up front, you got very little to do down the track. I—that's the lazy way that I come up with, right? The more you talk and and do the work up front, the less you have to do at the end. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't done a good enough job, then you have to go to the end and you have to try and come back from that. That usually means you're going to give them a discount. That's what usually happens, I think. And if you've got to come back from that proposal, you're probably giving them a discount to get them to go ahead. So true. Because what, what happens is you start to realize, I just spent a month coming up with this proposal. I've already spent all this month energy. I might as well give it to you for half the amount. And it's not even profitable at yeah. that point. Not half, yeah. but... Um, and it, and it's so great when you talk about the lazy way, because what I found is so often an entrepreneur says, I just need to get out, to, you know, uh, only 10% of the people I give proposals to are saying, yes, I'm going to do uh, 30 proposals mm. when it's actually much better to say, why don't you just increase your percentage instead of 10% flip it. And get to where you're only giving a proposal to someone who's pretty much already decided they're going to work with you. Put your energy on how do I meet those people? How do I meet their needs? How do I listen to what they want? And so I, now I, only, I can do half as many proposals and literally get twice as many sales. And so that's, in quotes, your lazy way of going. But mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, proposals can be a pain. Like I've, I've got to a point now, proposals take me literally 30 seconds because I'm trying to find a lazy way to do it. <laughs> So basically, it's like I've got to do a proposal. I like have to wait an hour or so before I send it because it's so quick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I can't send it. That like, well, sometimes I wait to the next day because it's like it's too quick, right? Um, and I think that's part of the process is that, you know, I, I set it up for the fact that it's going to be a sale. Um, and that's just the next step for them to do it. But also at the end of the day, you're actually controlling the process in, in, in the front as well because you're now controlling your time. You're not dealing with someone that's not interested. I mean occasionally I speak to someone and, you know, at the end of the conversation, like the entire call or consultation never asks the price. Mm. And I never tell them the price till they ask the price. Because yeah. if they don't ask the price, they're not interested. Right. <laughs> right? And so they may not like you, right? It might be just like you can't like everybody. So they may not just like you. So all they're really going to do is just be nice and get off the phone. 
So why bother trying to force the issue, right? If they're not going to ask the price, they're not interested. No point doing a proposal. It's just going to wreck my numbers, right? And so just walk away. And I've got off the call sometimes and thought, I wonder what's going to happen there. Like they're going to get off the call and think, he never tried to sell me anything. <laughs> and then maybe that might twist them back. Maybe they'll come back because they go, well, hang on a minute, you never told me the price. And, no. and it's happened a few times where they've come back and said, hey, what, how much was that? <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. Yeah, so I think that's the so the last thing I sort of talked about, and we probably could wrap it up, is um, talking a bit about delegation because I think that's a big thing with entrepreneurs is the ability to delegate, or, or they like to abdicate. Um, right. And and I used to when I used to sell accounting software, it was the the really hard part because you go into a small business and suddenly you realise how much or little they control their business by their accounting software. And then who could do things in their business and who were allowed to do things? So the whole delegation thing was all about control. In most in most people, most entrepreneurs who delegate want control. And that's probably the worst thing you can do because you can't even control a five-year-old, honestly. I, when, you know, you probably learned this when with being a mother as well, is that y you think you can control your child, you've got rocks in your head. You, from the day they're born, you've got no control to the day that, you know, if they're 21 or 25, it doesn't matter. You've still got no control. They do whatever they want at the end of the day. You just think you do. <laughs> you set up life to do, to make sure they do what you want. Um, but mm. it, you have to make it their choice. So I have so much to say about delegation. One, um, when I talk about what an MBA taught me, uh, our situation was they gave you so much work, it was impossible for one person to do all of the work. So we... Uh, formed these study groups on uh and i had the same study group and we met for breakfast every single morning at 7 a.m and the, but on monday we would kind of divvy up the week's cases and so i would only go deep on about three cases a week even though we would be reading 10 cases so i would read or maybe skim all 10 cases but i would get a printed out sheet of paper from my study group partner who was responsible for that case. So we literally had to rely on each other. We had to figure out, well, Kimberly was best with numbers, but John was good on the uh, engineering stuff and so-and-so was good on the people skills. And so um, that was a great way to be forced to experience delegation as opposed to being taught it. Mm. Well, fast forward many years later, I realized the more I could give my kids, the more, uh, A, I could run life as someone who was working three jobs and raising three kids, and two, um, it wasn't so bad for them either, is that we live in a land, many of us, of affluenza, and kids don't have enough responsibility. And mm -hmm. it, I remember a very specific day where I was on my computer, and I'm busy typing in name, address, my child's shirt size so that he can be registered to play soccer. And he's about six years old and he's over there in the corner playing a video game. Mm. I thought, nope, I brought the computer over to him. And I said, you can play a sport or have an activity when you can register yourself. And so from age five or six, I never once filled out a school form. I sign them, but you fill out all, you know your name, you know your address, you know your phone number, you know that Aunt Betsy's the, the person to call if you need someone besides your parent. And, and they filled out all of their forms, even when we get to the doctor's office. We get to the doctor's office, and I hand that little uh, clipboard to my mm. kids, and the doctors are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, 
I got a phone call to make. Uh, I sign it all. I double check that they said, you know, no, it was your left hand that you broke, you know, whatever it was. I make sure the information is right. But very early on, I realized that our kids can do a heck of a lot more mm -hmm. than we, we tend to take responsibility from them. Um, and I'll, I'll finish this part on delegation with my favorite, which is my trip to Australia is when we decided to go for three months, I was going to be working and the kids were going to be an online school. And I, I was just leaving a very intense job. So I thought we'd park ourselves on Bondi beach and relax three months. This would be great. And my daughter who was about to turn 16 said, Oh no, mom, I have a list of 32 cliff jumps, waterfalls, hikes, national parks. If we're going to fly 14 hours to the other end of the earth, we're going to see it all. This is, and I said, okay, I don't have time to plan that. Here's the budget. I, and I gave framework. I'm not willing to drive more than six hours in one day. Uh, here's our budget. We need internet access. And that girl made every, she, she did every email to every Airbnb for 89 days, so much so that when we showed up and the host came out to greet us, every time they shook my hand and said, nice to meet you, Savannah. And I was like, no, that's the 15 year old you've been talking to. My name is B. But she planned everything. Mm. And that to me is the best kind of delegation. She was motivated mm. and she had a framework. And that's really where we get, we make mistakes as entrepreneurs and as CEOs is we don't uh, delegate early. We don't delegate often. We wait till we're overwhelmed. Yep. And then we say, I have too much that I'm doing. I have to give it to someone. And we give it to them half-baked. They have no chance of success. And then we do the stupidest thing, which is, is we say, oh, I knew I should have just done it myself. So-and-so mm. made a mistake. Mm. But it wasn't that so-and-so did it wrong. It's that we didn't set it out and we didn't teach when we could, and we didn't do it early enough, and we didn't give framework on what would be success. It would have been like saying to my daughter, any amount of a hotel is fine, and you know we can do 12 hours difference you know, from one day to the next. No, no, no. Here's a framework. Here's mm -hmm. a budget. Get it done. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. Give them, give them, um, you know, at least some sort of box to go into to be able to figure out what's going on. Because I think that's the danger. Yeah, and I mean that that typically what happens is, and I've seen, and there's a book called The E Myth that talks about this too, is where a small business operator will eventually decide that they want to hire an employee and then try and give them the jobs that they don't like. Right. Right, and and eventually what happens is those employees don't want them to do them, so they give them back. <laughs> right. So they deliberately they don't do it well, so they'll take you take it back. Or you'll end up in a situation where you just end up saying, oh, I'll do that. That's easy. And they end up doing the jobs they like doing because you never had a framework to start with. You never actually had a job description to actually figure out what they were supposed to be doing. Um, and that's probably a time-honored thing that I've seen not, not a lot of business have anymore is a job description. I only had, I've only had two jobs in my life. I got, a, I got a job working in the bank when I was 15 and worked there for 12 years. And then I applied for another job. Actually applied for two jobs in in Sydney when I first moved to Sydney because I was going to shut my business down and move. And the the second job that I applied for, the guy asked something interesting. He said, "Can you give me a job description of what you think the job entails?" All right. 
it was a sales manager's job. The funny thing about it, I'd already written all these job descriptions for my entire business, so one of them was sales manager. Right? So I just took it, changed a couple of things, and just gave it to him. He said, that was the best written job description ever seen. You can have the job. Uh, right? And I realized that, you know, he hadn't, you know, obviously either hadn't thought of a job. He wanted a job description done to see what would happen or it was an interesting question to ask because it, it, it showed how much you understood about the job, right, to actually write a job description. And I'd say that most people who we asked to write a job description wouldn't be able to do it because they would have no clue what to do, right. um, in what they were doing even, right? And, I mean, even when we used to do interviews, we get people show up and go, well, can you tell us a bit about the company you're about to, you know, apply for? They have no idea. They need mean, research, right? And so it's I think so you've got it. It's so easy to research these days. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You couldn't even Google us to figure out who we were. So I think that's the, the danger is that, as you say, you know, if you can get someone to take responsibility for something, and know what the parameters are. Because at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, when you first did that, you probably made a mess of it as well. You know, you, you learnt the hard way probably. And they need to know what success is. Mm. You know, and know when you've achieved, achieved success. And then mm. you can build on to the next thing. So that's, that's always good. Alrighty. So um, you've got a book coming out. Uh, I know you yeah. can get it. I think you said you can get it in Barnes & Noble at the moment. And, and eventually it'll be another available in other bookstores and that's on pre-order at the moment. Um, yeah, so, pre-order it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon. It's yeah. just as easy to look it up by my name, B E A, yeah. last name W R A Y, and then it shows up what an MBA taught me, and then the tagline is the yeah. "But my kids made me learn." Right, cool. That's nice. And um, so we'll also put up the links for your website and your social media. So um, um, it's bray.com. So that's pretty easy. B E A. B e a w a r a y dot com. <laughs> Can't speak English today. Um, so we're grateful for you to come along and have a chat, and it's quite an interesting um, conversation we had. And I'll talk to you again soon. So great! Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoy it. Thanks, B.